Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, thanks for joining. In this episode of the podcast, I speak with Chris Yoko. Chris Yoko is the founder of Carbon Off, which is a carbon offset company. It's got a series of projects that they work with, they fund, funded by organizations and companies who want to offset their employers' carbon emissions entirely and make their entire lives carbon neutral. So really, really cool initiative. And this is one of my favorite podcasts I've done. I've had the fortune of knowing Chris for a while. We went to school together. I worked at his other company called Yoko CEO, which is a pretty much an all-inclusive marketing firm. He works with a lot of organizations, but one of his big things is to make sure he's working with organizations that make the world a better place. And for that and a lot of other reasons, I look up to Chris. He's incredibly inspiring, but on top of that, he's very, very positive about... Um, you know, some of the things we talk about, whether it's climate change or AI or just collective humanity getting their stuff together and and uh, solving some of these issues. So Chris is probably one of the most thoughtful people I've ever met. Incredibly cogent, but incredibly deep, has got some of the smartest analogies and metaphors throughout the course of this podcast, just to bring points home, just to explain things. I didn't really know too much about buying carbon offsets and kind of how that works. And he explained it to me and he explained how exactly works and kind of the world it's in and how it's not the only path and it shouldn't be the only path to a net or carbon neutral world. So it's an incredible podcast episode. Uh, Chris, again, is one of the most inspiring people I've been able to talk to inside or outside of this podcast. Just, just so lucky to know this guy. Um, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. And again, I'll give a plug to his marketing agency, Yoko CO. Their tagline is do good better. And I really don't think there's anything from the marketing world they can't do. Again, Chris is a problem solver through and through, and his team is, is some of the best of the best. Well, I hope you enjoy this podcast. I'm pretty sure you will. Um, if you do, please like, rate, review, subscribe. All that stuff helps so much. And yeah, I hope you enjoy. Well, Chris, thank you so much for joining me, man. I'm really excited to hear about Carbon Off and to talk with you. Yeah, man. Excited to be here. Thanks for reaching out. Yeah, absolutely. So we chatted a little bit about like, um, you know, AI and, and uh, just anxiety about the future, uh, things like climate change and stuff. And it's something I struggle with. And I, I feel like we've talked about it in the past, but like you are an optimistic person. Um, how did you get to be where you are to be as optimistic and as proactive and to lean into things like carbon off that we're going to talk about in a second? Like how, was that a process that you <laughs> got to that place or have you always been that way or, you know, what tips do you have? <laughs> uh, it's definitely a process. Um, I think like the key thing that drives my optimism is, like I'm as upset and disappointed about climate change as probably the worst of us. Yeah. And you either, at least to me, you either get down and then you get sad and you don't do anything about it, or you get sad and upset. And then that usually leads to like frustration and anger. 
And for me, like anger is a very motivating emotion. And it's like, all right, well, I'm mad as hell. I'm not going to take it anymore. Like we're going to at least try to do something about it. And it also helps because then you're putting your energy into something and you're trying. You're not just, you don't feel as helpless. I mean, even if you were helpless, you don't feel helpless if you're actually doing something. And so this felt like a meaningful thing that I could do. That was also like a good place to kind of like channel all of that anger and emotion that does feel i mean you can't help but feel a little bit helpless at least at the first sight of like this overwhelming global catastrophe and uh you know once you kind of come to terms with it then you're like all right what are we going to do about it yeah yeah exactly um i kind of feel the same way of right there's there's two ways to handle it one is just crawling in to your shell, which I've done before. And then the other one is actually like I, yeah. <laughs> being proactive and trying to do something about it, which again, I kind of vacillate between the two. Uh, but I really admire when people are, are wholly live in the moment of like, I've got to do something about it. I'm going to do something about it because I'm not always that way. So um, just wanted to start off by saying thank you for being a person like that and for developing um, and founding Carbonoff. Um for people who are uninitiated into like carbon offsetting and things, can you talk about the what carbon off is, the thought pr- process behind it, and and um, how you came across founding it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, so obviously, you know, you and I have history. We've known each other for a while, yeah. uh, both through school and then obviously uh, working together. And while you know we were working together, we made Yoko CEO, the technology and design agency side of things, uh, carbon neutral, which felt really good. But we were also all remote and we still put gas in our cars, food on our tables, heat and air condition our houses. And so as I would talk to a bunch of the people on the team, like each of us still felt like, great, it's nice that the company is carbon neutral, but each of us is still carbon negative and we go out and participate in an economy that has a negative impact on the environment. And that doesn't feel great. Um, and so after thinking about it for a while, we we're like, oh, well, what if we just made our whole, like our people carbon neutral as well as like a unique employee benefit? And so that was what Carbon Off was at the onset. Uh, and then as our team members talked to clients about it, clients said like, oh, that's a cool thing. We'd like to do something like that too. And so then ultimately what we ended up doing was we combined uh, forces and we collaborated with the folks at George Washington University's environmental and energy or energy and environmental management institute is eemi and i always forget the order of the e <laughs> um but they have a, a great team led by their director dr rachel yonison who helped us really kind of figure out what the right portfolio of offsets would be to really make a meaningful impact and kind of helped us build our portfolio and um, also just taught us a lot about where offsets are appropriate what are the pros and cons and how should we really be thinking about them yeah, and so what what did you learn through that process? Because I remember when when the office itself was being carbon neutral, um, and I think you had the initial talks of, um, you know, doing it for every single employee as well. But like, what what were the things, the process of getting to that point, and what kind of things um, do you do? Because I remember uh, you were initially talking about things like mangroves or our carbon sequestration and stuff like that. Um, so how does it actually how does it actually work? So there are a lot of different kind of projects that we support, and the idea of carbon offsets for a person who doesn't understand it or know what they're all about is, you know, we all in our day to day life, whether we're a person, a company, whatever, uh, create 
carbon dioxide, this invisible invisible pollution, uh, or other greenhouse gases like what one I'm personally really focused on is methane and destroying mm -hmm. methane as it's about 20 times worse uh, in the environment and atmosphere than some like carbon uh, dioxide. And so the idea of carbon offsets is you offset one metric ton of that gas being out there by either capturing it and sequestering it. And there are a lot of different ways to do that. You can do that by replacing it with the equivalent amount of hydroelectric power that would have been needed to create that same amount of energy that would have released a ton of pollution. You can do it by growing seagrass, by growing mm -hmm. trees. A lot of the new like technological uh, based measures like uh, Climeworks has direct air capture where they're literally pulling carbon dioxide out of the air and sequestering it underground. So all of these are different ways to essentially offset yeah. your carbon footprint because it's going to be very difficult for you to capture all the carbon dioxide you breathe and you create and that's all broken into like scope one two and three and we can go down into that route if you want to talk about it um but ultimately you can think of it just like litter you pay somebody to take your garbage away you take some pay somebody to take your recycling away and this is just an invisible waste stream that we have been negligent about and offsets are a way to kind of say like okay I put this ton of carbon out into the atmosphere and I'm paying somebody to help, you know, resolve it and take it away. Gotcha. And that's such a great point about just like litter, just like garbage. Have you heard of the sequestration of just pulling it from the atmosphere? Has that been tested at scale? Because to me, that's one of the most mind blowing um, practices. It's wild um, <laughs> and they get a lot of press over it. And I mean, there's multiple ways to go about doing it with technology. But the biggest one is a, a company based in Iceland called Climeworks. And their level of scale, like it depends on what scale you're thinking of. I mean, they're able to do several tons and I think they're now able to do thousands of metric tons wow. uh, of carbon dioxide, which is nothing to sneeze at. But when you compare it to like right. the global amount of emissions, like it's a droplet of a drop in the bucket. Mm -hmm. Like it would need to scale up. I don't remember what the number was, but it was like, by factors of millions or something like it has to grow a ton yeah. to be like a viable option for us to use. And like, hopefully we get there, but it's not going to be a single solution that gets us anywhere. It's going to be a lot of these things all in combination. And I mean, that's at its core, kind of what we're trying to do with carbon off is like one, it's nice to offset people's personal footprint. Cause that feels good, especially for the right kind of person. Like I think you, me, other people who are really conscious about that, that's a nice thing to do so that we kind of feel a little bit better. And especially if you value your team, I think it's a nice thing to offer to say like, Hey, this is a way that we value you and we share the same values. The other thing that it is, is a not so covert funding mechanism, right? Like these technology solutions, these natural sure. solutions, all these carbon offset projects, they don't operate out of nowhere. They need money. And I realize that there are tons of small to mid-sized businesses that probably care about these things too, but they're not big enough to have whole departments that can figure out how to do this. And so this was an easy way to say, hey, do something that feels good for your employees, helps negate some of your carbon impact, but more importantly, is providing like direct economic and financial incentive and stimulus so that there is more incentive 
for people to come up with these kinds of technologies or projects because it's going to take a whole lot of these different things all working in conjunction and parallel to one another for us to even have a chance to begin to, to pull back from the brink of what we're getting into. Oh, yeah, such a great point. Is there a project that you are most excited about? Is there, are there ones that you're able to follow? The ones that I'm super focused on right now is methane destruction. Okay. So like um, methane, like I said, 20 times worse than CO2 when it's just left in the air. Um, so literally by like destroying the methane, even by burning it, the amount of CO2 it emits whenever you burn it is a small fraction of a fraction of how bad the methane would have been. Hmm. Um, so like one of the projects we supported directly uh, is in Thailand. It's a, a wastewater treatment bog, but these things happen all over the world. There's lots of opportunities to do this kind of work is um, there are like starch plants, tapioca plants, et cetera. And what a lot of them will do with their wastewater is they just let it kind of go sit in a big open air bog. And then all the methane just kind of evaporates up into the atmosphere out of the bog, right? Hmm. What these projects do is you put a giant bubble over the wastewater bog so you can capture that methane. And so that prevents it from getting out into the atmosphere. And then what's pretty creative about it is you pump that same methane back into the factory that was emitting the wastewater. Sure, yeah. And now you use that methane as fuel. And so now you get kind of a double whammy positive effect where you get not only are you eliminating the methane emissions, but you're also replacing some of the emissions that would have otherwise been used by burning a different fossil fuel to power the plant in the first place. And so you get kind of a double net positive effect whenever you're destroying the methane there. And when you add that up, it ends up being somewhere between like 20 to 25 times more effective than if you had just captured the same equivalent amount of carbon dioxide. Right. For a gas that's 20, I've even read methane is 30 times more dangerous than uh, carbon dioxide. Or I've seen, yeah, different studies yeah. that scale it differently. And I guess it depends on exactly how you're looking at it. But no matter how you cut it, like it's significantly worse for sure. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've heard of um, uh, projects where it's actually has to do with cattle feed because I know cattle is a big methane uh, distributor. Right. And so different yeah. cattle feed can actually uh, reduce their methane emissions. So there's so many different the, uh, creative the ways. Seaweed one, right? Is that what it is? There's a certain type of seaweed they add to the feed <laughs> that, yeah, I guess works with the digestive system of the cows that eliminates something like 80% of their natural flatulence from, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever their feed looks like. It's wild. But then there you go. So that's two, right? Because that's, that's seaweed, which is a natural carbon dioxide emission, uh, uh, you know, uh, sink. Sink, yeah. Uh, and then there's uh, the actual, the feed. Um, so it seems like these do build on each other. And it's all a lot of these little projects that, you wouldn't necessarily expect, but it's just, you know, again, speaking from an optimist standpoint, it's people, you know, with ingenuity working our way out of a particular situation that we, yes, we might've worked our way into, but I think there's, you know, we can use the same brains to work our way out of them too. Oh, for sure. I think so. I mean, we <laughs> did it once, like not even what, I guess it was, I was about to say the nineties were about a decade ago and that would be way wrong. Oh boy. A decade, uh, about 30 <laughs> yeah. years ago. But uh, I mean, like you remember, and there's probably some people who might hear this that are too young to remember, but like we had that giant hole in the ozone layer yes. in like the late eighties, early nineties. Mm -hmm. And then we realized what it was and we were like, all right, we all have to stop using this refrigerant and we stopped using it and it fixed the whole ozone layer. And it was like, oh, okay. Mm -hmm. So like we can do it. It's just a matter of having the, the, backbone and commitment and I think willingness to sacrifice to do it again. And this is obviously more complex and a little bit 
more nuanced. But at the same time, like it's going to be international regulation and agreement that gets us to a place where, you know, we can kind of breathe easy again. Yeah. Yeah. And what I love about you is that you're so, you're so thoughtful, um, about everything you do. So I actually read your, your manifesto. I have it up in front of me, but one of the, my favorite lines that I like that kind of flies in the face of what we talked about earlier, but I kind of want to hear your explanation is you're talking (laughs) about like how it's pretty unlikely that, well, I'll just read it. It says, in short, I have no faith that our society will take significant action in preventing the devastating impacts of climate change until it is far too late. I that's that line really resonated with me because I feel the same way, but then yet I'm still an optimist about it. So I don't know how you you kind of have those two conflicting thoughts or like how you can rationalize that because <laughs> I love this manifesto. I want to talk about more parts of it. But again, that line really stuck with me and I want to hear how you kind of thought your way around it and through it. I mean, I think that we're all, I mean, human nature is to be very reactive, right? Mm-hmm. Like I've got two kids and like one of them, the youngest one walks up to the stove and I was like, Hey, watch out. That's hot. Don't touch it. And she looks me dead in the eye and then puts her <laughs> finger on the you stove. Gotta test it. And it was like, dude, like <laughs> I just warned you. And it's like, if there's ever been a microcosm of like what's happening at the societal <laughs> level, the scientists are our parents and they were like, you're not going to want to do that. And yep. like, Oh yeah. Yeah. And then we did it. And so to your point, like with that line, I do think we're not going to notice it until it's too late. We're already kind of getting to that point. Right. Like you're starting to see like insurance protections break down in the housing market, like people pulling out of markets, which I think is like one of the big first signs of like when the actuaries start to sharpen their pencils and go like, we can't even make money in this area. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a sign that things are pretty bad because actuaries are pretty good about finding ways to make money in any market. Wow. Yeah. Like we're already starting to see the sign that like, okay, we touched the hot stove. We've got to pull back. But the reason I'm optimistic about it is because if more people like you and me and millions of other people who are all trying to do positive things for the climate, the more progress we make on these tools, by the time more people buy in, the more effective they're going to be. So I don't think it's a lost cause, but I do think, again, reactionary as we are, like it's we're not going to start to really put these tools to good use until we've really you know, kind of felt the burn, so to speak. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking, you, you mentioned a couple scenarios of how, like, I think a lot of people think, okay, well, legislation will be passed, right? Legislation will get us out of this. Will you talk about like car seatbelts, right? They were invented in 1959. And it took until 1984 for the first states to pass laws for them to be born. Uh, asbestos, you mentioned other things, but, um, is that kind of, is that your thought process? Is that like, we're not, we will not be able to legislate our way out of this. I don't think we'll even get to a place where we'll be able to, uh, well, we can come to unity on that. But to me, and it sounds like to you, it seems like our best bet is honestly like corporations like, like Google, I always look to them. I feel like they were one of the first ones to be carbon negative well before most governments. Is that kind of your thought process? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the the older I get, and especially like, I mean, I wrote that manifesto before I had kids. And so like, obviously having kids is a pretty big life event that changes your perspective on things. Yeah. And I will say one of the things that's changed most for me there is like, I do still think we need to, because we don't have any chance anyway, of relying on anything <laughs> other than our better angels is 
hoping that you know and convincing more companies to be like woke or whatever you want to call it and yeah. do things that they don't have to do to make the world a better place but looking at the role of regulation like it would be the fastest and quickest way mm-hmm. to get things right and the way that i look at our government is it was supposed to be like a parental figure and like its citizens are its children and you're supposed to like compromise and do the things that are in the right interest and the best interest in the family and there is no family that would work under like the political regime we have now where like the mom and dad are like bombastically being like your father's the devil your mother's a succubus everything she says <laughs> yeah. is wrong and everything i say is right and that's where we're at right now so yeah <laughs> i do think it would be best if we could get to a regulatory place where that would help and just because i'm pushing this anywhere i get the chance to if we vote for things like rank choice voting or single transferable vote that allow you to have multiple candidates run without any of them being like a quote unquote spoiler candidate. Yes. That would fundamentally, I think, diffuse the tension in the two party system and allow you to have like more truly representative elective, uh, you know, uh, elected representatives. And that would be a huge unlock because then I think you'd be able to have a lot of people whether they consider themselves left or right leading now run even against their own party members and then if you know people are like hey out of all the republican candidates i like the guy who cares about the climate but then if he doesn't win then transfer my vote to the other you know republican who doesn't or vice versa like it gives you a lot more opportunity to have more nuance in politics instead of just you know chocolate and vanilla yeah yeah, to that extent, like you can see a lot of European countries are making a lot more progress. I mean, you know, they, they just have obviously different values, right? I think they're a lot more thoughtful about this potentially, um, climate change, but they, they are making a lot more progress uh, uh, with their own legislation on this. I, I feel like that's probably a big reason why. I think so. I mean, even like the big, uh, the carbon border adjustment mechanism, the CBAM that the EU adopted, where they were like, look, we got to treat this like waste. And so there's a price to it. And now, let's just make sure that it doesn't act as like a a tariff or a, a negative tax in our own local economy. And they had put in the adjustment. And I think that's the way I wish the U.S. would do something similar. Um, you know, I work with a lot of clients and companies and try to encourage them to consider including carbon pricing in their business model. The SEC finally is at least making people report on it. Hmm. So, you know, there's some hope that we're going to inch in that direction. So maybe we'll get there. But I don't know, a bunch of companies and comp- uh, countries all saying like, yeah, we're going to be carbon neutral by 2040, 2050 is an alcoholic parent getting behind the wheel saying like, I'm going to stop drinking when you're 30. Thanks. That's not really helpful to the kid <laughs> right now, is it? Like, there's just not a whole lot of validity to it. And I don't think it helps anything. Yeah. And kind of with financial institutions, right? Even BlackRock, I feel like that was a big tide change. Uh, their their stance on on climate change. I feel like things like that will move the needle a lot more or quicker, hopefully. Obviously, there's some back, backlash about that as well. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. I uh, I just wrote an article. There's a we're talking about where it might get published, but basically talking about yeah. how a lot of these commitments to you know either it's a climate pledge or whatever that companies make are like New Year's resolutions, where it's like. Look, like a lot of New Year's resolutions fail the first time around and you don't give your friend. Do you curse on your podcast? Yeah, sure. 
Okay. Like you don't give your friend shit and tell them they're a crappy person because they failed their new year's resolution. Like you, if you're a good friend anyway, you probably like either you give them a good natured ribbing or you try to help them like build up so they can do it the next go round. And what I'm worried about we're doing with a lot of like the corporate pledges is like the ones that actually tried and said they were going to try to do something, even though it was harder than they expected. As soon as they started to fail, a bunch of people have been like, see you piece of garbage like why you're not doing what you said you were going to do etc yeah instead of giving them the grace to be like all right you tried don't give up like keep going and there are tons of companies that are just like look keep our head down keep polluting as long as people are throwing pitchforks at the people who are trying they're not saying anything about us and like those are the people i think we should be really pissed about yeah 100 percent. it's also frustrating obviously you know greenwashing is such a term and it's become a term because it's such a thing uh so there's obviously that so i could see people being For sure. frustrated yeah. with that but yeah such a great point of if someone is with a company or you know any organization is well-intentioned, but they don't happen to succeed the first time around. I mean, it's a big ask. We should have a little grace. We should understand that. Yeah. Like, I mean, you have to get into it with like some skepticism and you can be both skeptical and kind to somebody because a lot of companies can be like, Mm. Oh, it was too hard. Like the first 20% was easy because all we had to do was change our packaging vendor. And like, then we were mostly, you know, we saved 20% of our carbon footprint, but now we have to like, really do hard work and we don't want to like that's an excuse you can't let go but then there are going to be others who are like oh we didn't realize we were going to have to reinvent half of our business model in order for this to Hmm. like actually get us to climate neutrality without just trying to buy a bunch of offsets which offsets have their role but it is not to offset the majority of a company's uh carbon footprint yeah like those ones you're gonna have to say all right man take a couple cracks at it like you get a few at bats appreciate you trying rather than doing nothing yeah what um, what companies are leading the way, as far as you're aware? I mean, I think you know you mentioned like Google's a great one. A lot of the tech companies have mm-hmm. the advantage there, right? Like they've got fat margins, yeah, and yeah, yeah. they've got the ability to be able to do that. So like the stuff Microsoft was doing, or that Stripe did, and like the giant purchase they made. Um, if you look at like the giant purchase they made from Climeworks, like they guaranteed them a ton of like buying offsets from them directly at a rate that is 10 times, you know, what wow. the the going rate for like a cost to, to offset a ton of carbon dioxide might look like. And they did that specifically because one, they're technology companies and they believe in the evolution of, um, you know, exponential technology. So they were like, look, we're going to give you a bunch of this money in the hopes that each year we're getting more offset for the dollar we spend as you make progress with the technology and you find ways to scale it. Um, But I think a lot of them are doing a really good job. And then there are interesting players who, you know, it's a big part of their cultural identity all over the place, whether they're big or small. Um, And a lot of them are, I think, a lot easier to find these days than than they used to be. Yeah. Again, on your manifesto, you're mentioning like uh, short-term, mid-term, long-term, like the kind of the blend of these types of projects that we're going to see our way out of uh, of this, you know, and you mentioned short terms are like projects that buy us time, projects that reduce energy consumption and related pollution, projects that repurpose waste and create circular economies. Midterm is projects that inspire balance and sequester carbon, projects that foster the ad- uh, adoption of renewable energy, and long-term are projects that actively remove carbon from the atmosphere. So you, you've kind of talked about 
uh, you know, at least the the last uh, long term. But like, what from the short and midterm are you excited about? And like, how how do they all work together? Obviously, on the time scale, but like, how do they all work together? Yeah, I mean, so you touched on a little bit of it, right? Which is, if it's a Venn diagram, like the short term, the midterm, the long term, like they all overlap by a lot. Yeah. Um, but there are the things that we need to do that are just going to try like that 1.5 degree warming, anything we can do to push that back, I think is going to be good simply to buy us time. I mean, some people are even talking about like geoengineering, which could definitely be like a big yeah. double-edged sword. Um, so I think, you know, the ones that buy us time, the methane destruction obviously is like a core one. Um, there's a really interesting, uh, episode of uh, the Gimlet podcast, uh, How to Save a Planet, where they talk about like the hmm. refrigeration bounties and the bounty hunters who go out and they like hunt down these refrigerants and destroy them. And like those are the things yeah. that have a significantly worse impact in the atmosphere. And then that midterm is, okay, if we're starting to buy a little bit of time, what else can we do to really meaningfully extend that time horizon by a couple of years so that we could then get to a place where like in the long term, like hopefully some of these like technical solutions get up to speed and start to truly follow some of the rules that we've seen with uh, with other exponential technology. And we can have, you know, big giant fans powered by solar power, geopower that are able to at vast quantities suck carbon out of the air, be it directly next to the source where it's being generated and captured locally or simply capturing it out of the atmosphere generally. Um, but like that technology isn't going to be where it needs to be by 2050. Like that's going to take longer. And so we need to be doing some of these other things to help buy that technology time. Yeah. It's kind of like a, what is it? Triage with a, like a patient. Like, okay, great. The biggest problem is like all of these bullet holes or whatever the case might be, but we just got to do some things to buy time while we get them to the surgery center how do we keep them alive? There are other things that we can do. And it's kind of the same idea here. It's just all about triage. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm really curious about, about methane, right? How you've kind of mentioned that a couple of times. Um, what other gases are in that category? And like, I just kind of want to hear you talk about how you're talking, you're tackling that because I think a lot of focus rightfully so goes on, um, you know, uh, carbon emissions, but I don't really think that there's too much of a focus on methane, at least, I don't know, uh, you know, I've probably heard about it the most in the past two years, but not too much before then. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, there are the ones that I'm aware of, and I'm like, I wouldn't say that I'm an expert on what are all the greenhouse gases, because uh, I know that there are a number of them and different combinations of them at different concentrations do different things. So I'm not the guy to answer that question. Yeah. The ones that I'm like most aware of, obviously carbon dioxide, which we've been talking about, methane we've talked about, um, ozone, which is usually created by, what is it, UV light hitting oxygen. I don't remember. Is that O2? I think it is. And then uh, nitrous oxide are the other ones that are out there. Um, while from a concentration perspective, uh, like there's far more carbon dioxide from an impact perspective, I think one study I looked at showed that methane is contributing to somewhere between, I think it was like 16 and 20% of like the overall effect of global warming. And so that's why I was like, oh, like that's a sizable opportunity, uh, which is why that's like such a focus of mine. Interesting. So, oh, and then I did, I did forget about the refrigerants too, because there's the, 
Uh, what are the refrigerants? There's the ones that we stopped using whenever there was a hole in the ozone layer, which I think those were like the hydrofluorocarbons. And then a lot of those got replaced with like, uh, what I don't remember what PFC stands for, perfluorocarbon, I think it was. Mm -hmm. And then um, sulfur something, some kind of sulfur fluoride, sulfur hexafluoride, sulfur hetero. Het I'm not the expert on those. Like, yeah. you, you can probably Google them and find them better than I'm going to be able to share them with you. No, still, I love the again. Yeah, I love the the focus on methane because it, it is such a such a large one. So, uh, how many projects do you work with, and how do projects get involved with with carbon off? Yeah, so there's a there's a couple of ways that we go about doing it. Um, most of the way that we do it is like a, be, I guess to give you like a quick preface. Uh, the world of carbon offsets is a lot more nuanced than I really thought. Mm -hmm. And the best metaphor I've come up for it is like, have you ever hired a contractor to like do a job in your house or have your parents or anybody? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For me, this, uh, what I've been told is that this experience is very similar for a lot of people. When we hired the first contractor to do like a little project in our house, I just figured all contractors were the same. So I asked a friend if they knew anybody, they put me in touch with somebody they were like, yeah, I can do it. It's going to be this much money. We paid them half. They said it was going to take three weeks. Six months yeah, into the three-week yeah. project, it's not nearly as done as it's supposed to be. They're saying that we need to pay them more. They haven't done the job they were supposed to do. It ends up, I end up having to do the last half of the job and everybody's unhappy. And the next time I hire a contractor, which I don't want to do because I had such a terrible experience the first time. <laughs> Eventually, I'm like, all right, it's not going to happen again. We're doing crazy due diligence. We're checking references. I'm taking a look at other examples of their work. I'm talking to friends who have worked with them. Like, I'm really doing the work to make sure I work with somebody who's good. And the next contractor I hired, it actually ended up going beautifully because imagine that they were a professional. Mm -hmm. The exact same thing is true in the world of carbon offsets. And so, like, maybe you saw like the John Oliver special or something where he kind of blew up, like, oh, carbon offsets are terrible. Like, yeah, a lot of the things, he, like, I don't disagree with any of the things that he shared. Like, there are a ton of really terrible things out there that pretend to be carbon offsets, that pretend to be additive, that pretend to be true natural solutions, technology solutions, et cetera. Um, that was a big thing that our, that's one of the reasons we teamed up with the, uh, the advisory panel that we did at GWU is they were able to help open our eyes to all of the risk associated with really bad offsets or people who weren't really even doing offsets who were basically just pretending to do offsets. Or maybe the project was already funded by the government and they were just reselling those credits because, hey, a bunch of dumb Americans will buy them anyway. They don't know any better. So that first screening process was just like being able to do the education and do the due diligence. And so there's kind of three layers that we layer in. The first is we work primarily with Vera and Gold Standard, which are two hmm. registries that already have a pretty high bar to entry. Um, neither one of them is perfect, like nobody's going to be perfect, uh, but they're pretty good. And then we work with our team at GWU to further refine the list to see which ones we think we want to work with. I should also mention anything on Vera and Gold Standard also has to be certified by an independent third party make sure like their methodology is right they're really being additive etc um again like some can trickle through each of those holes and like i don't envy the registry position because they have to simultaneously be this incredibly good filter that is doing a good job of only yeah. letting really additive things through 
they also don't want to be a bottleneck because we are in a little bit of a climate crisis and they want to try to let through all the good stuff. But for every one poor one they let go, like their reputation takes a huge hit yeah. and they're very cognizant of that. So we work with them. That's kind of the first filter. The second filter is uh, the team at GWU and ourselves doing the additional due diligence to figure out, okay, based on all the paperwork that's been applied to this, the methodology, everything here looks legitimate. We'll usually reach out and actually talk with the um, the proponents who have actually start to put the project in place or the ones who represent it to learn a little bit more about it. And then we'll finally decide which projects make sense to include in our portfolio. And uh, so that's like how we set up the ones that we have right now. Um, we're actively supporting, uh, I think, four projects right now. There's a hydropower one, uh, a wind farm. There's the wastewater treatment and um, a pretty cool. Some people argue that like the natural solutions and like forestry shouldn't count. I disagree. I think there's a lot of merit to it. I just think its merit's been overhyped and people think like, we'll just plant all the trees in the yeah. world and that's the only solution we need. Like that's not going to work. Um, but there are some really meaningful benefits to uh, the work there. And that's one of the the red plus projects. Okay, cool. Yeah. I'm taking a look at that. That is, that's an interesting argument. I people see that, but I can't see in any view of the world how reforesting isn't a good thing. Yeah. I mean, considering everything we've done, and even if you like look at it from like a geological perspective, right? Like you look back, like we've had instances where the world had a higher concentration of CO2 than it does now. Sure. And the reason it came down is because like a bunch of these forests weren't interrupted. They got a chance to grow. They actually got better at absorbing more CO2 because that's actually where the mass for a tree comes from is they're pulling a lot of it out of the air. And so when the air had more of it in there, they could grow larger. And so there is certainly an adaptive response. Unfortunately, that takes a long time to happen. So it's not like a thing where you could be like, cool, the next 10 years, all these trees will adapt and they'll just look like they're on roids. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's going to take like hundreds of years for them to catch up. And so like, that's not going to be a reliable solution in like the human lifespan. But if you're looking at it, like from a, a geological perspective, like planet earth is going to be fine, whether we're here or not, exactly. but uh, yeah. there's definitely an, a level of efficacy that it adds. Yeah. Uh, another argument for just maintaining old growth habitat an old growth uh trees i i, I read for sure i know my other yeah. thing is like oh sorry i was gonna say no, i know good. you and i are both like big environmentalists like a lot of people also don't pay attention to like just the biodiversity side of things there. Yeah. like there's a lot of species and stuff that exist only in these places and i personally think it would be a real shame for them to go extinct so that somebody can have a credenza from wayfair like it just doesn't seem worth the trade off right right yeah <laughs> yeah i was reading um it was like one of those kind of feel this is where i you know i, I don't love feel good articles but mention that we have more trees now at least in the continental us that we've ever had I don't know how, or it was either continental U.S. or, 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 or uh, including or excluding Canada. I can't remember. Um, but then you just dig a little bit deeper, and it's all like none of its old growth or what they're considering. It's all yeah. virgin new plants, uh, new trees that that just aren't really pulling the same weight. A bunch of yeah, yeah. five year old saplings. It's like, look, our population is just as big as it was before the war, and it's like, right, but the five year olds can't quite do what the the twenty to forty year olds could. Yeah, seriously, yeah, or a hundred plus years year olds are doing. So that's interesting, and and so for for companies and organizations to get involved with carbon off, it seems like it's incredibly straightforward. I'm on the site right here. You've got a calculator for it. You can calculate how many employees you have, how much you want to offset the carbon by, 100, 50, or 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 10. Um, 
you mentioned a number of times that every bit helps, uh, but then it just really just spits out a number for you. Well, and that's what we tried to do is like uh, a lot of people have asked us, well, how do you know what my employee's carbon footprint looks like? Right. Like, how are you calculating it and everything? And I don't know if you've ever done this. A lot of people who are interested in what their carbon footprint looks like will look up one of those calculators and they'll be like, oh, cool. Let me answer the 12 questions or the 20 questions or whatever. <laughs> and then the questions end up being like, how many therms of energy did you use last yeah, year? How many specific. miles did you drive? And it's like, I mean, I know for me, like I leave it open in a tab for like six months and then I just never <laughs> came back to it because I was never going to get that information. And so, again, we worked with the team at GWU to say, like, would it be OK to use the U.S. average for global employees? And we know that we we averaged high for the U.S. employee because, quite frankly, there are other countries across the world that aren't going to be doing this at all. Mm -hmm. Like if there's ever a time to just average a little higher than maybe necessary, now is the time. And so rather than you having to worry about doing a whole lot of paperwork and trying to figure out exactly what each employee's specific footprint is, you can rest assured that for most of your team, the average we're using is going to cover them. And so that's basically what we did is, again, coming back to the point you said earlier is don't let perfect be the enemy of good. Like, sure, you could maybe take another 12 months and dial it in perfectly. And what you'll find is you are probably going to be within about 10% of what we would have estimated you to be anyway. And so why not just get the jump on it and start doing something now? Yeah, 100%. Um, how much have you guys offset or removed so far? Um, so far, I think we are right around 50, 5,500. I think it's around 5,500 metric tons, somewhere around there, which like, I mean, one of my goals was like, to get to a billion uh, offset at some point. So that there's a long road to hoe. Um, but, uh, you know, everything starts small to begin with. Yeah, for sure. And how many um, companies are you working with currently? Uh, we've got a, it's been good. It's, we've got a good clip. Um, you know, each month uh, we've got a few folks who will end up signing up. Um, I can't share like the specific numbers, uh, but uh, what's been interesting is like, how some folks will find us and yeah. how some folks will jump in and say, Hey, like we want to do this for maybe our entire team or like, Hey, we want to start off with like a single department. Um, like some managers have, I guess, freedom to kind of choose like special perks just for their department. And so like some have said like, Hey, we can't do the whole company, but we can do, you know, these 20 people from our department or something. And so it's been cool to kind of see the different kind of mixes that come in and take part. That's great. I, I can only see something like this growing in popularity, right? I think it's such a great idea. I mean, you even mentioned a remote company, right? Most A lot of companies are remote right now, um, but you're offsetting the carbon for the entire person and that entire person's family and their hobbies and their their pets and kind of every, the whole the whole nine yards. And you mentioned just how like health insurance isn't just for the part of person who comes to work. It's for that entire person, right? There are, <laughs> there are ways to do that. So I love the way that you mentioned that. And I do think that this is something that's going to, um, again, just only grow in popularity, right? Especially if, as people learn more about these projects and as people learn, uh, that this is a great way to not only fund those projects, but to, um, fund it for your entire workforce or even just a small uh, fraction of that. Yeah, I mean, I'm hopeful that it is. Uh, you know, I think it's probably leapfrogging things a little bit here in the U.S. Because I mean, there's not even all that many companies that are like truly carbon neutral. So to say, like, hey, once you're carbon neutral, why don't you also offset your employees? That's true. Like, okay, yeah, it's definitely <laughs> okay. looking down the down the road a little bit. Um, 
but honestly, like I said at the beginning, like it's just it's a really good way to show folks that you care. And it's a really good funding mechanism to help put some you know economic stimulus behind really creative and intelligent, innovative people who really care about helping to protect the environment to make sure that there's, you know, more and more funding going in that direction until we get to a place where we can kind of hit some kind of uh, you know, appropriate balance between our emissions and whatever we're we're naturally offsetting through all these combination of factors. Mm. Yeah, hundred percent. And we, we talked about it a little bit before the call, but changing gears slightly, like we talked about, you know, your optimism already, but like how do you translate that to things like AI? And what do you think are some of the the things that AI can do uh, that we haven't yet been able to wrap our arms around when it comes to carbon emissions or biodiversity or any of the things we've mentioned? Like, what are your what are the things you're most excited about or you see on the horizon? I mean, I think there's going to be a, a lot of wins uh, that AI is going to be able to bring. I think it's going to take a while for it to do things with like the super large data sets. Because, I mean, the issue with, like, even, like, meteorology at this point is, like, there's so much data and we work with the data we know, but we don't know how much data we're missing. And so, you know, I think that'll still be a thing that takes some some fine-tuning. But I think some of the really interesting things that are going to be considered, like, the low-hanging fruit for AI to pick is uh, if you consider, like, Amazon, FedEx, like, all the delivery drivers – you know, I think mm. I don't know if you've heard that story about I don't know if it was UPS or FedEx, but like their delivery system is so fine tuned that they found out it was more effective for most drivers to take three let three rights than to wait at a light for like a single left that they'll have them basically go through and execute oh, a wow. whole bunch of right hand turns because that was like most optimal. I think AI is going to be able to start to take this list of like, OK, here are the packages. Here's the logistics. Here's how to do this in a way that is going to be faster, more effective, and with a reduced uh, carbon footprint. I mean, you're even beginning to wow. see some of that with, um, that's the new normal in Google Maps. So like if you set directions, right. the route it gives you by default is the one that has the smallest uh, carbon release or carbon emission associated with it. And then you can choose to optimize by time or distance or whatever else, but it's going to naturally, you know, kind of like the opt-in organ donor program, kind of if we mm. know that this is the first option we give people, most people are going to exercise it. I think there's going to be a lot of things like that that AI is going to be able to help us do that won't affect anyone noticeably day to day, but will have a drastic impact impact on the planet. Well, nice, man. Well, thank you so much, Chris. I really appreciate your time. I love how thoughtful you are about everything that you do. Um, I love how like proactive you are. And I think one of the worst things is when people have the ability or the the means uh, and actually don't do anything about it. So I love the fact that you're, um, you know, you started Carbon Off. You're always so thoughtful about every endeavor you go under. But one last plug, if you want to talk about anything for Carbon Off or like what people can do, floor is yours. Oh, well, thanks, man. I mean, first, before we even get into that is, I mean, all of us only have so much time during the day and I am massively appreciative of anybody who's willing to commit their time to making the world a better place. And, you know, both through this project you're doing, but I also just happen to know through like a lot of the work you tend to do on like a day-to-day -day basis, be it in your like work life or in your personal life is focused on like leaving the world a better place. I just wanted to share that. I appreciate you too. So we can found a little mutual appreciation society at some point. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, sure, for anyone who's listening, if they want to find out what kind of stuff I'm involved in, the the best place to find it is usually just my personal website, which is just chrisyoko.com. And you can get links out to all the stuff I'm involved in from there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Chris. Appreciate your time. Yeah, man. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks, dude. Thanks for joining. If you like that episode, 
feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com, where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time. Take care.